Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. My guest is a refreshing and an incredible voice out of Hollywood. He is the writer and movie director, Dimitri Logothetis, and he's here to tell us about his work from his latest Jiu-Jitsu number four on Netflix to the upcoming sequel, Kickboxer Armageddon. Dimitri will share his US immigrant success story and the meaning of his action-packed movies in today's world. Look, John, you know, especially with what we just went through, there's so many things in life that we have absolutely no control over. We don't have any control over the pandemic. We don't have any control over our government, whatever country you live in. We don't have any control over our taxes, you know. And so in my films, you walk in there and you see this this guy who is, uh, you know, uh, very, very athletically uh, prepared and, and a wonderful martial artist. And when somebody bullies him around and it looks as though, you know, he's he's up against somebody that he'll never, ever win. In jiu-jitsu, it happens to be an alien that can't be beat. Uh, you know, you kind of relax for a second and live through him. And you say to yourself, well, this guy, you know, and that's what Clint Eastwood did. Mm. Clint Eastwood made these films, you know, the, the ones where he was a cop, the Dirty Harry series where the entire government and the, and the cops were against him. And he turned around and came up on top because he just he, he had enough and he wasn't going to take it anymore. And he was going to do the right thing. And that's basically the heart of a good action film. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political and social upheaval. Life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Dimitri Logothetis works with some of the top and most fascinating talent. Now, what I found refreshing about my interview with him was his man of the people persona, his unique grip on reality and on human nature, and his love of America as a Greek-American who started with very little in life. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. I'm, I'm an authentic immigrant. Here's an immigrant. My parents came over here as, an, as immigrants. I think that if it wasn't for America, I would have never had the opportunity to do all the wonderful things that I've been able to do. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is the writer and movie director, Dimitri Logotitis. He has an amazing backstory and a lot of creative work coming our way. You'll know the name from his latest jiu-jitsu movie starring Nicolas Cage, and you're going to enjoy what he has to tell us next. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Dimitri, thank you for coming on my show. You're a very busy guy in the movie industry. Delighted you could join me. Well, thank you for having me, John. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Your name is very well known in the 
field and in the genre you cover. You have a lot of fans out there. I had to do a little bit of research. I've, I've seen one or two of your movies. I don't hold myself out as an expert. I do go to movies. I'm a bit of a movie buff. So if I pronounce this or butcher the name, uh, let me know. Jiu-Jitsu. That was your last movie, correct? And that's the start of, in, of a new chapter in a franchise. So just tell us a little bit about that. Yes, Jiu-Jitsu um, is a martial art. Um, that has been made famous recently, meaning in the last 40 years, by the Gracie brothers, who uh, it's called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, BJJ. And it is really sort of the basis or the heart of the UFC and the ultimate fighting, um, because it's an art form that takes place uh, both uh, while you're standing fighting and then also when you hit the ground and you bring an opponent down and you start uh, kind of wrestling and fighting on the ground. Um, but jujitsu itself, I chose because it's a, it's a martial art that has no, uh, origin It's certainly not no historical origin, meaning it's very difficult to pinpoint where it started. Um, uh, the Japanese take credit for it. Uh, the Koreans take credit for it. Uh, when you do a lot of deep research, you'll find out that, uh, uh, even the Egyptians take credit for it. So, so it was perfect. Uh, for this particular science fiction story that uh, I came up with, uh, originally writing a comic book called Jiu-Jitsu. And uh, basically, uh, in, in our fantasy, we said that the martial art was brought to us by uh, another, by an alien. And he's the one that, that brought it here thousands of years ago. Um, every six years, there's a comet that passes through our solar system. And in so doing, that comet opens up a portal in an ancient temple in Burma, Myanmar. And then out comes this alien and a group of jujitsu fighters that has this sort of secret organization has been training to meet with this alien for the last 2000 years. So that's basically the genesis of the story itself. Um, and it was a perfect art form to use for that, uh, very similar to a lot of the the cave drawings and, and, the, and the drawings that you would see in, in ancient Egypt about uh, everybody talks about the fact that the way that they're, they're drawn looks like it could possibly be an alien, you know? So we, we took that concept and threw it into our fiction um, so that we could have a good basis for the story. So that was released last year, late last year, and it starred Nicolas Cage. Yeah, actually, you know, I, it was an independent feature. Um, and it was, uh, and, and Nick was wonderful in it because he's the one that, that, uh, that talks about the backstory and the particular backstory that I'm telling you. And he did it in such a great way being the, the terrific actor that he is. And he sold the entire backstory and set it up now for the audience. Um, I never anticipated the success that the film has had. Uh, you never do. I'm very grateful for that. Um, when, uh, first of all, Paramount, uh, the Highland, uh, the, the company that sold the movie around the world, set up a division uh, to take it out in the U.S. Um, and Paramount joined them and, and they picked up the film and it did phenomenally well um, domestically when there were no theaters during the pandemic. And then Netflix, when they took it out to their 200 million subscribers in the U.S., we opened in the top 10 and quickly by the end of the week, we were number four. Wow. And so, and then when it opened up in Canada and Netflix, we were number one. 
you don't you don't do that with a martial arts audience. You really need the entire uh, audience uh, of, of everyone, action, et cetera, to, to, to watch a film. So we did a we crossed over into a number of genres and did phenomenally well. And, and again, you know, you never you always want your films to work. You always want people to enjoy your films, but you can never predict this kind of success, you know. COVID was difficult on the movie industry on Hollywood. And on the other hand, it opened up a lot of opportunities for filmmakers like yourself to break into new audiences and demographics via Netflix in particular. Well, Netflix has been wonderful, a wonderful supporter of the Kickboxer franchise because I rebooted the Kickboxer franchise. Uh, you know, I, I got involved in this company called King's Road Entertainment. Uh, which had a number of uh, titles in it, about 37, and, and a number of them were up for remake. And Kickboxer was, uh, the, the company had made seven Kickboxers way before my time. The original one was Jean-Claude Van Damme in, in the late uh, 80s, which was, uh, you know, now a cornerstone of martial arts films. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's revered as one of the pop culture films of the 80s and 90s. Um, and so I rebooted that franchise about five years ago and did phenomenally well with Kickboxer Vengeance and Kickboxer Retaliation, um, which, you know, normally critics attack martial arts films. But in this particular one, Kickboxer Retaliation, I got a 92% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. And I think our audience is, I don't know, 80% or something. So it continues to grow in audience. And, uh, and so Netflix has been a big supporter. They picked up uh, both those films and they picked up uh, jujitsu and it, uh, we've done very well on that. So, so, you know, when you're an independent filmmaker, again, you, you know, you, uh, you, you pray and hope and dream that everybody is going to have, is going to relate and enjoy your films. Cause I mean, I, I make films that are uh, fun and uh, action oriented. And so I'm, I'm hoping that whatever choices I make, uh, the audience will go for it and, and have as much fun as I as I do when I'm making it. So you said critics sometimes pan or often pan these kind of movies, the martial arts, where there's science fiction and combat and a lot of action. But it, that didn't happen so much in your case. Why, why would the critics, why would they take that approach? They don't think there's enough art involved? Well, I think, first of all, let's define critics. Um, Back in the day, uh, you, you're probably a, a, a little older, as am I. Um, there were only a dozen critics that meant anything, you know. Today, you have uh, a number of forums where everybody expresses their opinion, you know, God bless them. And so in the Western world, martial arts films are considered to be a B minus genre, okay? Mm. In, the, in the East, uh, it's one of the best movies you can make. It's the godfather of films, you know? Mm. So, and so they revere uh, that kind of uh, a film because it, it's about honor, respect, loyalty, doing the right thing, having your own code that transcends uh, sometimes the law, as long as it's about taking care of your loved ones and your family and living true to your word. And so those are the kind of things that, that are integral in a martial arts film. In addition to that, you have, you know, um, you have to have real martial artists, which they do over in Asia. And the kind of athleticism that these people do, if you take a look at my films, 
about 10 minutes into the film, what, what most audience members will say to me is they'll say, oh, my God, I just realized that these people are doing this themselves. They're not being doubled. They're actually doing a front aerial, a back aerial, a flying sidekick. They're doing all these things that, you know, most actors are double doing or you hook them up to wires and make it seem like they're doing it. Um, and so with me, you know, all of my uh, guys and, and gals do it all themselves. And so, again, there's a point when you're watching the film, you know, where the little boy and little girl and all of us will look at this and, they'll, and you'll say, wait a minute, this is a real superhero. And perhaps if I was to train uh, that way at any age, maybe I could do a lot of the things that they do. And I could be a real superhero and deal with all the bullies in my life. And so that's that's basically the the in the heart of any good martial arts film. So some of the critics are clearly clueless. Well, that uh, you know, that, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> um, but you know, what's really funny is if you take a look at some of the uh, the critics' reviews on uh, on Kickboxer Retaliation, which again had had a very very high reviews. A number of the critics got it, and they said things like, you know something? I started to watch this film, and I really started to enjoy it. Mm. Uh, you know, so what? What are you going to do about it? <laughs> Basically, they love the fact that they, you know, it's like, I'm just trying to let you have a good time and, and, and live through the lead. And, uh, you know, watch him do a lot of ass kicking. And if you enjoy that and crack a beer, you know, relax. I mean, you know. Giving you an hour and a half of fun. <laughs> well, you know, I'm reminded of what critics used to say about some of the early Clint Eastwood movies, all the West, the so-called spaghetti westerns made right. on a shoestring. Now they're classics. You've yeah. got art colleges studying the themes and the plots and looking for messages which we never looked for in the past, but they're they're beautifully made movies. Look, John, you know, especially with what we just went through, there's so many things in life that we have absolutely no control over. We don't have any control over the pandemic. We don't have any control over our government, whatever country you live in. We don't have any control over our taxes, you know. And so in my films, you walk in there and you see this, this guy who is, uh, you know, uh, very, very athletically uh, prepared and, and a wonderful martial artist. And when somebody bullies him around and it looks as though, you know, he's, he's up against somebody that he'll never, ever win. And jujitsu, it happens to be an alien that can't be beat. Uh, you know, you kind of relax for a second and live through him. And you say to yourself, well, this guy, you know, and that's what Clint Eastwood did. Hmm. Clint Eastwood made these films, you know, the, the ones where he was a cop, the Dirty Harry series where the entire government and the, and the cops were against him. And he turned around and came up on top because he just... He had enough and he wasn't going to take it anymore. And he was going to do the right thing. And that's basically the heart of, uh, of, of, of a good action film. Now, in Kickboxer Retaliation, you worked with Mike Tyson on that movie. And he was great. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah, I found that fascinating. Well, he's had um, an interesting and checkered career, but he's in a good place right now. Um, he's very creative. Yeah, Mike is one of the nicest guys. You know, I've been fortunate enough in my career to work with. I did a documentary with Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, George Foreman, Larry Holmes, and Ken Norton called Champions Forever. And I've 
I've been, you know, uh, uh, fortunate enough to work with some of the biggest athletes in the world and some of the strongest, uh, fiercest fighters in the world. And they've tended to be some of the nicest guys in the mm. world. Mike uh, is incredibly intelligent. He's incredibly well-read. And, and he's got a very, very big, uh, soft heart, uh, which I believe was taken advantage of several times. You know, he went through what he went through in life. A lot of us make mistakes. Uh, but he was wonderful to work with. Um, and he was extremely, um, he had a lot of gratitude for where he was at that particular time when I worked with him. And he, and he said that, he said, listen, he said, everything that's happened to me in the past is my, my responsibility and my fault. And he said, now he said, I'm in a wonderful place. And he said, I, I got a great family, which he does. He's put them all through school. And he said, I just feel really good about, uh, about where I am. And he said, I'm just going to continue to, to, you know, and he goes, thank you so much for hiring me. Very few, very few actors will say that, you know, and he says, I'm so happy to be here and I'm so happy to be working. And, and uh, you know, when you really think about that, it, it's true. All of us should be grateful that we we are doing whatever it is that we like to do, you know, because most people don't. Yeah, just, amazing. I, I, I'm thinking of another character, and um, he's still professional, um, still fight, Conor McGregor. Yeah. If you could grab him for a role, I think it would be. So he's got a very interesting psyche and uh, mental approach to how he conducts himself. And he's detailed this in interviews. And he's an amazing success story and draws a large crowd, I think, is part of his attraction, his charisma. Well, I think Conor McGregor is, besides that, he's a very clever mm. uh, man. And I think uh, he's, he's wonderfully uh, entertaining, right? And he learned that. Um, and so he's exploited that wonderfully. I mean, I'd love to work with Conor. I think he's, he's extremely charismatic and uh, he, he, a lot of fun. Uh, prior to him, um, you know, there was a guy, Sugar Ray Leonard, uh, who was also a wonderful businessman and, 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 and wonderfully uh, uh, entertaining and, and athletic. And, and then, of course, the heart of it all was Muhammad Ali. You know, Muhammad Ali is the one that showed all of us that uh, if you if you become entertaining, I mean, he transcended uh, being black at the time. Uh, he transcended uh, the box, uh, the uh, box office. The purse, he got mm. paid more than any other uh, fighter had ever been paid, uh, black or white. And I think uh, all that stuff, you have to applaud these guys, you know, when they when they transcend all that stuff. So They've all the ingredients for the big screen. What, what kind of a role would you see Conor McGregor playing? What would you cast him in as he continues his professional career outside of making a movie, perhaps? Oh, I think that Conor would be a wonderful lead. He's got a great face, mm. got a great, uh, great charisma. I mean, he could easily be a leading man. Wow. I would stick with action with him. I don't know. You know, you never know. I mean, look at look at uh, The Rock. The Rock, you'd never think it'd be a wonderful comedian. Look at how what a wonderful actor, wonderful comedian he is, you know. And uh, he has no problem making fun of himself. And he's the most successful uh, actor, box office actor there is. And he's done everything. So uh, from comedy to action. You've had a long career in making movies. Tell us about some of the other ones that stand out and we could just talk about why they're important to you. Well, I mean, I had, you know, Champions Forever, as I said, was a very pivotal documentary. 
It was one of the most successful documentaries uh, in, in the world at its time prior to documentaries being big success stories. Um, and I got an opportunity to meet um, all of these wonderful fighters. And, and uh, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali was a hero of mine. So the fact that I got to sit there and, and with him, beyond boxing I'm talking about, uh, he wasn't just a wonderful boxer, but he was a very, very brave man. You know, very few people know that he, uh, he flew uh, to Iraq and sat with Saddam Hussein and uh, was unwilling to leave unless Saddam Hussein gave him some hostages. Mm -hmm. And he did it against the State Department's wishes because he felt it was the right thing to do. And he put his life on the line because Saddam could have done anything. And uh, but he, because he was a devout Muslim and a lot of the Muslims believe that he's a prophet, um, he felt that Saddam wouldn't do anything to harm him. Um, and he was right. I mean, uh, and he stood up for his beliefs. I mean, you know, he, he wouldn't go to Vietnam and he lost uh, almost everything by that. He lost his purse. He lost his title because he stood by his belief. And, and when you sat with him, he, he wasn't reverent about it. He just was a normal guy who said, I just did what I thought was the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's really funny. You know, when you think to yourself, he lives well, by principle. Yeah. You know, and you think to yourself, well, gee, he was, well, was Muhammad Ali humble in your opinion, or was that all put on the way he projected his. Oh, very much. He, he was, look, he was a lot of fun to be around. Mm. Uh, he was, he was, uh, uh, he would, he was a jokester, but in terms of, uh, he never, ever once thought that he was, uh, doing something magnanimous or great. He just did things because he felt it was the right thing to do. Uh, it, forget about the fact that he was brave enough to get in the ring with some of the most fiercest men in the world. That to me, his profession was, but outside of that, he was even braver as far as I'm concerned, you know? Yeah. And, uh, uh, so I, you know, that was, that was a real pivotal point in my career for me. Um, and a standout point. And then, you know, I, I did a movie called Stephen King Sleepwalkers. Uh, I managed to, uh, to get one of the first Stephen, uh, I think it was the first original Stephen King screenplay ever written. And I managed to do that. Um, so I, I, I've been very great, uh, successful and grateful in, in, uh, as an independent filmmaker. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I'm hoping to, uh, to continue. You have kicked Boxer Armageddon in the works. Where is that at in terms of development and when we'll see on our, uh, it on our screens? Forward, look forward to doing that in the new year. Right now, uh, I'm working on a project called Flying Shadow, uh, which is an original project that I wrote along with my, uh, my writing partner, Jim McGrath, who he and I have been working together for about 25 years, going all the way back to television. Um, and so um, I'm looking forward to that. That's a kind of a buddy martial arts film along the lines of Black Rain with Michael Douglas. Jiu-Jitsu 2 that's being written as a comic book right now. And uh, I'm going to write a, uh, I'm coming up with a screenplay for that uh, in about a month and a half. Could you ever see yourself doing something completely different to what you've done in the past, as some kind of an old-fashioned romantic comedy um, or a Western, would you take on any other genres? Well, would you be comfortable doing that? Romantic comedy, I would love to do. It's not in my wheelhouse, but I'd love to do it. A, a Western I've done in the past, I love Westerns. Mm. Um, it's very difficult to make today because they just don't, uh, they haven't been able to just sell again, you know. 
And so I, I need to do stuff that the distributors, and by the way, you know, if you look at the heart of my storylines, they could just as easily be a Western, you know, action films can drop into any one of those genres. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I would love to do a, a big Western at some point. That'd be a lot of fun. I'm probably okay to have one more drink before I drive home. I'm probably okay. I open the window to stay alert. Probably okay, I just popped some gum in my mouth. Step out of the car, please. I probably made a mistake. Probably okay isn't okay when it comes to drinking and driving. If you see a warning sign, stop and call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. My guest is the writer and movie director, Dimitri Logotitis. You've heard of his jiu-jitsu martial arts movie, number four on Netflix. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. When we talk about movie making and you talk to folks outside of Hollywood, they look at it and see something completed, but they don't look at the process, the step-by-step process. It's arduous. It's difficult. There are so many moving parts and there's also financing. So clearly you've been successful financing all of these movies and getting a return. Is that the tough part, getting people to back your movies? Or do you have your own financing mechanism that works? You know, the problem is, John, that every day everything changes. And uh, whatever worked today doesn't work tomorrow. As an independent filmmaker, you constantly have to be aware and awake uh, in terms of where you can get more financing. You know, a lot of us utilize the tax credits that we have in the different states in the U.S. A lot of us utilize the tax credits or cash rebates that we have around the world. In jiu-jitsu, you know, we went to um, uh, Cyprus uh, because they had a very aggressive uh, cash rebate now. Uh, and so, you know, you have to put the full package together. You know, the fact that I have succeeded in this genre uh, helps uh, when I when I put my name uh, to to another movie, uh, but you still have to get you know some actors. You have to get a lot of that stuff, and so that's the arduous task. Mm, mm. And uh, and and you know back in the day, again, um, everybody revered independent filmmakers because it's not easy for us. We don't have we you know we we not besides putting the financing together and getting a movie made, which I applaud any filmmaker when they can do that. Um, you have to be right. So, for instance, um, I if I shoot a film and I'm finished with the film, hopefully every single scene uh, from the beginning to the end works, okay? Because if you're making a major motion picture, you have the ability to go ahead and go back to the studio and say, by the way, I think if we reshoot the end and if we fix this and come up with another 10 or 15 million to do that or 20 million for this, they'll do it. They have the money to do it. They're multi-billion dollar companies. I don't have that luxury. And most independent filmmakers don't have that luxury. We have to be right. Wow. And so most people realize that uh, who are, you know, the critics that have been around for a while. And they know if we get it right 85% of the time, oh, my God, you should applaud the filmmaker just for that alone. <laughs> and if people enjoy it, gee, that's even another bonus. So, uh, you know, it, it's a completely different set of skills. That, uh, that, you know, when you're in a studio, studio, as much as they don't like it, if you go over budget, they're not about hitting the budget. They're about making sure that the movie is a success. 
And if that means coming up with more money to make it better and better and better, they'll do that. I don't have that luxury. I got to be right in the moment. And so that's a big burden to carry and make sure you get A, the performance, B, you get these, the uh, action sequences right, C, you know, you get the, the, the integration of the actors together and the, and the stunt people together and to make sure that it all is entertaining and something that people are going to want to watch over and over and over again. That's something that we have to overcome uh, with every single project. That might explain why Clint Eastwood, I've read one scene and it's done. He doesn't keep reshooting. He's he's very budget oriented in that sense, although maybe it's a creative thing. Yeah, I talked to Clint about that when I was I was a, I was a making a TV series at Warner Brothers and that's his home. You know, that's where he made the majority of his films. And I asked him about that and he said to me something that I carry with me now. He said that spontaneity is what a movie's all about. And he said, you want to try to capture that spontaneity with the actors. And if you over, if you do too many scenes, he goes, the spontaneity usually happens uh, in the first two takes. And after that, he goes, all of a sudden, you'll, they'll lose the twinkle in their eye and they'll lose the spontaneity of thought between them and the reaction, the spontaneous reaction, which was really something that, that, that hit home for me because he's right, you know. Film captures like you and I are talking right now mm. and you don't know what I'm going to say. And so, and I don't know what you're going to say, but you're reacting to whatever it is I say. And I'm reacting to whatever it is you say. Now, if we, you ask me the question again, right afterwards, that spontaneity and reaction to, you know, our conversational change, and it'll become kind of rehearsed, if you will. So he's always trying to capture that spontaneity. Uh, it works for the budget, but obviously he's been right. <laughs> his movies are terrific i love all these movies he comes out with in the last 10 years it's fantastic he's a fascinating guy we won't spend the show talking about him but he's a sort of an outlier in hollywood he's a conservative by definition i'm not sure where that takes him on all the issues well a friend of mine, that's a kind of a rare jewel a friend of mine at one point said to me he said you know when we're younger he says all of us are very liberal uh and he says as you get a little older and uh and uh move uh, on into your life, you start to become a little more conservative. So, you know, <laughs> well, you have I, a lot more to conserve. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and more to protect, you know? So, but I mean, he's a great guy. He's just such a wonderful artist and he's, he's, he's really done some amazing work, uh, both in the action world. And of course, in the art world, he's done some amazingly wonderful films. So. Must be easy to work with because he draws all these uh, these great actors, and of course he has a successful number of films to his credit. So that's obviously very attractive to anybody who wants to be in one of his movies. Um, Dimitri, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, you're sort of an American success story, and I don't mean to flatter you, but um, your your parents came from. You came over here to this country when you were six with your yes. parents. You're from. You're Greek American. Yeah, I'm, I'm an authentic immigrant. Here's an immigrant. My parents came over here as, an, as immigrants. I think that if it wasn't for America, I would have never had the opportunity to do all the wonderful things that I've been able to do. Um, you know, uh, you know, you you have an accent, and, and you know, yeah, what it is to be yeah I'm from, an immigrant too, and to be from Europe, um, and the kind of things you know that people don't understand about the old world is. You really have to be from a certain family, a certain family name. You have to have connections. It's not easy to move around and 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 rise in success. Not to say that it doesn't happen, 
but it's a lot more difficult. And in America, frankly, and, and I was told this by several uh, immigrants um, and also by several Europeans, they said something really fascinating to me. And they said, you guys in the States, he says, you don't believe, uh, you, you believe that anything is possible. You don't uh, hold any limits in your own mind. So if you decide that you want to become a filmmaker, if you decide that you want to become president, you actually believe that you can do it. He said, a lot of us over here in Europe kind of know what our limits are. And I looked at them and I said, well, that's too bad. <laughs> because I said, you're kind of setting up your own limitations in your own mind. I said, and so that was really something fascinating. And that has to do with our American spirit, I think. I think that that, that is something that is embodied in us, you know. Um, you know, America's been through an awful lot, but but it's the place for me that was the land of opportunity because, you know, my parents didn't have any money. I didn't have any connections in the business at all. And I say to everybody, perhaps it was because I was too stubborn or or, or not smart enough to understand that I couldn't uh, end up becoming a filmmaker and, and uh, writing and directing films. Uh, so that in and of itself meant to me that why not? Why not me? It's, it's remarkable. I mean, your, your upbringing was humble and then you succeeded in Hollywood and you had some early roles. As a young man, you had some roles in various movies. Yeah, the most, the most pivotal one was New York, New York, uh, which was directed by uh, Martin Scorsese starring uh, Liza Minnelli and Robert De Niro. And I spent an awful lot of time with them. And uh, hung out on the set at just when when Robert De Niro and Scorsese's career was blowing up. It was just after Taxi Driver, and they were just completely blowing up. And uh, I learned an awful lot. And it was Scorsese that actually inspired me to go to film school. He was reading a short story that I was that he grabbed a short story out of my hand. I was 19 years old, and I was still in school. And uh, and he he started reading this short story, and he said to me, "He goes, you know, you're a pretty good writer." He said, you should consider film school. And I said, what's film school? Because that was a new thing, you know. And so uh, he ended up writing me a, a letter of recommendation and I, I sent it around and I ended up going to film school. So you went to film school and you had some further roles. And then what that eventually led into you becoming a director many years later. How did it what was the sequence? I got out of film school and I started working in cable television. Cable television was a new thing at the time. I ended up directing um, all kinds of talk shows and game shows and building these little studios, uh, primarily in Hollywood. There was a big cable operator uh, that had the biggest franchise in the country called uh, Communicom Cable. And they were bought by Westinghouse, which eventually I think was bought by Warners. And I ended up being able to do everything. And I had so many hours of, of uh, just cranking out 20 some odd TV shows a month that were on all satellite syndicated. And, uh, and that really was sort of the basis, the Marine training, which led me into more television. And, uh, and that's where I learned how to just kind of do everything uh, from uh, lighting to running cables to, to directing football games, local uh, baseball games, high school and college. And it just gave me a really good core of understanding, even at that point, how to let uh, that art form be sold to an audience in such a way that they would pay attention. So 
uh, all these things were the genesis that that led me to filmmaking. And, and uh, um, I remember being offered a very, very big job in my late 20s, a vice president in, in this cable company by, by a wonderful guy who ran the cable company. But I knew if I took that job and I, and I ended up uh, getting that money, um, that I would never open up my own film company. So I decided to say no, which, which stunned him, a guy by the name of David Lewine. And then I walked out and I set up my own film company in Culver City and just started making independent features. Who do you rank as some of the best actors and talent out there? Oh, God. Well, today, I mean, uh, Tom Hanks, hmm. uh, who is, I think, the godfather for us. Yeah. That's a good choice. Right. I think uh, Brad Pitt, who I think can cross over into just about anything. You know, he he really, his heart comes across uh, so powerfully on the screen. Um, God, Leonardo DiCaprio, who I think has grown in a big, big way. You know, there's just so many wonderful actors, actresses, I think, that, uh, that really are believable and engaging you know you 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 want to watch a film and you want to completely forget after the title sequence that you're watching a film these are the kind of actors that sort of transcend all that for me has covid changed the industry movie houses were shut down for quite a long time and people became familiar with Netflix, if they hadn't already watched Netflix. So there was all this binge watching and a lot of movies got distributed through Netflix, saved the industry to some degree. Will it be different after we finally and fully come out of COVID? I think that the movie theater is a completely different experience. And I think it's extremely resilient. I think that uh, when video first came out, that was around the time I came out of film school, everybody said that video would destroy the film business. You know, it didn't. Mm. I think that sitting in an audience and watching a concert, sitting in a theater and watching a comedy, sitting in a theater and watching an action film is a completely different Mm. experience in front of the giant screen. No matter, you know, today you can get a giant screen at home uh, for pretty cheap, uh, you know, and get yourself all set up and, Maybe for a payment plan of 25 or 40 bucks a month, you can have this great theater in your home. But I don't think it's going to change the experience that you get by going in a movie theater. You know, I, I showed jujitsu in a screening in, in Cyprus that was hosted by the Russian embassy. And it was the first time that I'd seen it on the big screen. And, it, and I just looked at the audience. I was sitting in the back of the theater and I saw them riveted to the screen. And I thought to myself, wow, <laughs> I guess they're really... They're really enjoying this, you know, yeah. you know, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, yeah, that moment worked and that moment worked. And OK, I guess it works. <laughs> so and that only I think you can only get that in a the movie theater. So I, I think I think it's going to be a tough thing to beat. You know, you go to the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. Oh, my God. I mean, that's a whole different. I mean, it completely engulfs you. It's as if you're living in, in the in, in the movie you're watching. So I, I don't think it's going to go away. I think it's resilient. It's bouncing back right now. Look at the box office. It's coming right yeah. back. Well, there's kind of like a communal energy in those movie theaters. Yeah. You know, people go to see live bands. They can hear it, obviously, at home on their audio players. But people want events. They want to be with other humans. We're social animals. 
That's right. So That's right. It, it sort of explains some of it for sure. On your movies overseas, are they dubbed uh, into the local language? Does that become an issue? It depends on who does it, you know, and what country. But yes, they are. And they seem to play very well. So, uh, so far, so good. But, you know, um, I remember a wonderful filmmaker uh, that was in film school who told me once that if you're doing a terrific action film and you do it right, you should be able to turn the sound off entirely and you should just be able to watch it. And mm. you should know exactly what's going on. Yeah, so, so dialogue is less important, but your kind of movie and John. If you try that little experiment, you can kind of tell. Hmm. Because, again, we are social animals with feelings. As long as we can see, you know, I, I also say to everybody that I don't care what movie you're making. It's probably about 80% this close-up. And as long as you can see the actor's eyes and the way that they're relating to each other, you can pretty much get what's going on, you know. So that's the most important thing. I mean, this is not a book. This is a visual medium. And so as long as you can see it, I think you can get a reaction out of people. Going forward the next year or two, Jiu-Jitsu, that franchise that you're starting off, that's what we should look out for. And uh, Well, I'm doing, I'm doing flying, flying Shadow. I'm shooting that now. Okay. I'm doing Jiu-Jitsu 2. Um which I'm preparing, uh, but that won't be ready. Uh, Kickboxer Retaliation or Kickboxer Armageddon is going to come in right after Jiu-Jitsu 2. And then I've got a couple of big features that I'm working on with a good friend of mine uh, from the library that's that's going to be a, a much bigger studio type pictures that I'll be producing. But but uh, in terms of the, the stuff that I'm making as a filmmaker, it, first is Flying Shadow and after that is uh, Kickboxer Armageddon. Well, just back to COVID real quickly, um, you know, Hollywood, I'm sure production shut down or it was sporadic uh, during the, the, the surge. So there's a big appetite now for new content. So that must be a good situation for somebody like you. Well, for all of us, I think uh, that you're right. Production around the world, thousands of films and TV shows shut down. And we've hit that point where... Uh, you know, all of the outlets have no more product to show you. So mm -hmm. we're all watching stuff that we saw two and three and four years ago over and over and over again. I, was, I sat there and I, and I watched Vikings over again, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm going back watching all these wonderful films that I haven't seen in a long time just because, you know, I'm, I'm out of content myself. So, yeah. What's your philosophy on life? What drives you as a person? I mean, you've had this extraordinary, outstanding success. Um, you're presumably in a very comfortable place materially. So is, is it the art at this point that drives you? I, again, I'm, one, I'm wonderfully grateful that I'm able to be a storyteller in the film business. And uh, I just uh, will continue to do that as long as everybody likes uh, and enjoys what I'm doing. And I, that drives me. That's my passion. And I'm able to do it. And I've, all, I've always said to everybody in between projects, I found uh, myself uh, doing the best I can to try to pull myself out of retirement. You're in never going to retire. I'm always retired. And then I get, to, I get to go back to work again. And when I'm done and I deliver a movie, it's like I'm back in retirement. So I try to see I can get the hell out of retirement again. Dimitri has been a great pleasure having you on my show. Thank you. You have me sold as a fan.
Thank you so much, John. It's very wonderful of you to take the time. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.